Hello, crime historians, and welcome back to another episode of a crime story podcast. I'm your host, Kaylin Lois, and thank you so much for being here today. I can't believe this is the seventh episode. I really appreciate all your support. I recently found out that I had made the podcast charts in France and Germany, and that is because of you guys. So thank you so much, and my next goal is to make the charts in the U.S., so let's see if we can achieve that together. Now, a fair warning about today's story. Uh, This episode of A Crime Story features stories about sexual violence, assault, and rape on both women and children. Listener discretion is advised. So without further ado, let's just hop into today's story. Today's case shows the depths of human depravity and has always both fascinated me and disturbed me. I often show people the picture of the perpetrator at parties because it is just so crazy and so frightening what this man did to this island. I I realize this isn't the most appropriate subject matter to bring at parties, but you really can find out who your people are pretty soon. <laughs> so the grotesque nature of this perpetrator both like frightens and captivates me because again, I can't believe this man got away with it for 14 years. Anywho, as always, let's start this episode discussing the legal landscape of Jersey. Jersey belongs to the United Kingdom. However, the laws of the Queen do not exclusively operate. Instead, Jersey has a mixed law or pluralistic system with both civil and common law that finds influence from both the French and English law systems. Autonomous in both financial and legal systems, Jersey self-governs as an autonomous state with its own courts of law. 49 elected members make up the state assembly to run Jersey. However, as a British Crown dependency, the UK defends and represents Jersey in international affairs. The island of Jersey, officially called the Bollywick of Jersey, lies 14 miles off the coast of Normandy, France. English serves as the official language of Jersey, but the local language called Jerseyus is a dialect of Norman French, remains popular with the older generation in Jersey. Courts of law also use French as their language. In 2011, approximately 98,000 people lived on the 45.5 square mile island. St. Helena serves as the capital city and Jersey uses the UK pound sterling. Man of Steel actor and 2013 Sexiest Man Alive, Henry Cavill was born in Jersey and Victor Hugo, the French author of Les Miserables, uh, exiled in Jersey for three years. The Nazis occupied Jersey during World War II, the only UK territory to have the Germans rule. Today, the island's claims to fame include having the largest title changes in the world, highly valued wool, 
and Jersey cows. And by the way, if you have never had Jersey cheese, you need to go to your specialty cheese store and buy some because, oh my God, it is good. And now living in France for almost two years, I feel like I can determine what a good cheese is. So listen to me. Anyway, in Jersey today, the island remains Englishified. But a movement to bring back the Jersey language and the traditional culture exists. Our crime story takes place on the island of Jersey between the years 1957 to 1970. In November 1957, a 20-year-old nurse waits for the bus after a long shift at the hospital in the mont area. A man comes to the bus stop dressed in a long coat and a dark cap that covers his face. This man drags the nurse into the field and sexually assaults her so violently that she requires emergency treatment. All she can remember about her attacker is he had an Irish accent. Five months later, a perpetrator or perhaps a different perpetrator drags a 20-year-old woman walking home from the bus in the parish of Trinity into a field and rapes her. This time, the attacker put a noose around the victim's neck, a different perpetrator or perhaps an involving M.O., Four months later, in July 1958, another attack occurs. The victim, a 31-year-old woman, helps establish a clear pattern. Young women, a bus stop, taking the victims to a field where the rape occurs, and two out of the three cases involve a noose. Clearly, one sick, sadistic, awful human being is on the loose in Jersey. The fourth attack has slightly a different or an also involving M.O., whereby the perpetrator attacks a 15-year-old girl, and my heart just breaks. The girl was walking home in the parish of Grooville. Just a couple months later, in October 1959, he attacks and assaults a 28-year-old woman in St. Martin's Parish. Five attacks same person or different, but something is amiss in Jersey. Sadly, multiple events have to occur in order to discern a pattern. Remember, internet databases that could show patterns did not exist at the time, and notice that the attacks took place in different parishes. Detectives after the fifth attack did notice similar M.O.s and themes between the attacks and conclude that the same person committed the crime. Each victim had noted a male in his early to mid-40s, around 5'6", with a Irish accent. Some victims described the attacker as wearing a rope around his waist that he would then use to bind the victim's hands together. The biggest clue? All five victims stated that their attacker had a musty smell to him. The police then dub the serial rapist the Beast of Jersey. (laughs) 
The year in 1959, or according to other reports in the year 1960, the Beast of Jersey changes his M.O. by breaking into homes, attacking younger victims, and attacking both sexes. On Valentine's Day in 1960, he opens a window and sneaks into the room of a sleeping 12-year-old boy. He places a rope around the boy's neck, drags him into a field, and then sodomizes him. The very next month, a 25-year-old woman walking home from the bus stop in St. Barlade accepts a lift. The man driving a rover claims himself to be a doctor and on his way to pick up his wife. The man wears a cap, a duffel coat, and gloves, but the victim can't really describe what his facial features are like because of how dark it was outside. The man drives the car into a field, punches her, threatens to kill her, before tying her hands behind her head. Next, he drags her out of the car and into the field, where he rapes her before dragging her back into the car. She jumps out of the car and manages to get help for her injuries. That same month, the beast seemingly becoming more comfortable, strikes again in what I think is his most ambitious attack. In an isolated cottage in the parish of St. Martin, a ringing telephone awakens a mother around 12.30 a.m. Going downstairs, she answers the phone but only hears like a dial tone on the other end. An hour later, she wakes again when hearing a sound downstairs. She turns on the lights and walks downstairs. Upon reaching the bottom of the stairs, the lights flicker and she hears someone in the living room. She heads to the phone, desiring to call the police, but then a man reaches out and grabs her. The man asks for money, ties her hands, and threatens to kill her. At this point, her 14-year-old daughter awakes and comes downstairs. The Beast of Jersey now turns his attention to the 14-year-old. The mother escapes the house and goes to get help at a neighbor's farm. But remember, she lives in an isolated area and the neighbor's house was not nearby. She returns home and finds her daughter barely alive. Horrifically raped. The daughter eventually recovers, thank God, at least physically, and I doubt that anyone can fully recover from an experience like this emotionally. In April 1960, remember he had attacked three times in the past two months. A 14-year-old girl in La Roque awakens to find a man in her bedroom wearing a terrifying mask. And when I tell you about this mask, like, y'all need to head over to my Instagram right now and look at this because it is beyond scary. He took the mask off, causing her to scream. I could not find more info about this attack, but I like to think the man left after she screamed. In July 1960, the beast abducts an 8-year-old boy from his home. Wearing a raincoat, he takes the boy to a field and rapes him before taking him back home, leaving the victim on his doorstep. Thankfully, there were no more attacks in 1960, 
But in 1961, a 12-year-old boy, a 11-year-old boy, and an 11-year-old girl are all attacked. The rape of young children puts the people of Jersey on edge and kicks their investigation into high gear. They ask all the men on the island to get their fingerprints, and all but 13 men comply. Authorities also release a press release. It reads, and I quote, The beast always struck at night, and up to the point he had only struck on moonlit weekends between the hours of 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. He appeared to have intimate knowledge of the island, particularly of the eastern areas. He was described as being about 40 to 45 years old, about 5-6 feet tall, with a mustache and of a medium build. He is usually described as wearing a low thigh-length jacket or raincoat, which gave off a distinct musty smell, a peaked cap and gloves. His face was always covered, either with a face mask or with a scarf covering the lower part of it. He carried a torch with him during the attacks, and his methods followed a distinct pattern. His victims were selected carefully and the usual method of entry was a bedroom window. Once inside, the man was fast and silent and he usually blindfolded and tied up the victim's hands. In each case, a rope was placed around the victim's neck and they were taken into a nearby field and suffered sexual assault, then returned home. The assailants spoke lots during the attacks, with a voice that was described as soft and in an Irish accent. He had mentioned at various times a wife, a dead mother, who had died of a drink, and that he had killed before, and often made a point of saying that he dropped either his cigarettes or his lighter. Jersey is not a large island. Indeed, it is only less than 46 square miles in total and stands to reason that someone would have known or at least suspected someone who matched at least part of this description. Every possible man was looked at and all men with a criminal record were questioned and interviewed, but the beast was still not found. Jersey authorities bring in Scotland Yard to help investigate, but no more attacks occur for years. The citizens of the small island remain terrified and start suspecting their neighbors. One name keeps popping up, a fisherman by the name of Alphonse de Gasrois, who lives a quiet yet eccentric and free spirit life. In 1961, police arrest and question Alphonse, but release him after interrogating him. Police also release his name to the press. Upon returning home, Alphonse finds his windows broken, and later a scared and angry mob burn his cottage down and threaten his life. In May 1961, Alphonse leaves Jersey on his boat and lives on a reef between Jersey and France. He later describes his life on the reef as paradise compared to what I've been through. Alphonse lived on the reef for in exile for years. 
I know that I previously stated that no further attacks occurred for years, and Alphonse lived on the reef for 14 years, and the attacks do continue after his departure. Perhaps the press release caused the perpetrator to end his violence. Perhaps he had left the island, but in 1966, the police receive a letter allegedly from the beast. The letter reads, My dear sir, I think that is just the time to tell you that you are just wasting your time, as every time I have done what I always intended to do, and remember, it will not stop at this, but I will be fair to you and give you a chance. I have never had much out of this life, but I intend to get everything I can now. I have always wanted to do the perfect crime. I have done this, but this time, let the moon shine very bright in September, because this time it must be perfect. Not one, but two. I am not a maniac by a long shot, but I like to play with you people. You will hear from me before September, and I will give you all the clues, just to see if you can catch me. Yours very sincerely. Wait and see. In August, the beast starts again committing these heinous acts by attacking a 14-year-old girl in Trinity Parish. This time, the beast leaves long, perfectly spaced, and parallel scratches on the girl's torso. Thankfully, there are no more attacks for four years. In 1970, the beast strikes again with a 13-year-old boy who wakes up with a torch shining in his face. Wearing a mask and having black spiky hair, the beast takes the victim to a field and sexually assaults the child. The beast threatens to harm the victim's family if he tells about what happened. And like the previous victim, has scratches on his torso and his crime comes to light. Committing and getting away with one of the worst types of crimes imaginable on a small island with few people living there for over a decade seems nearly impossible. Frustration, worry, and panic have been fomenting amongst the citizens of the island as well as the authorities. Most likely, the citizens of Jersey knew, worked with, called a friend, and, and see on a daily basis the beast. He had hidden in plain sight for nearly 14 years. In July 1971, police patrolling in the St. Helena area pull up to a traffic light around 11.45 p.m. A small car strikes past them at high speed and the police pursue the car. The car does not pull over but tries to invade the police by going down foothills and side-sweeping other cars, driving on the wrong side of the road, just like breaking all types of laws, before crashing into a hedge in a tomato field. The police immediately arrest 46-year-old Edward Jean-Louis Pinel. (laughs) 
The police bring Pinnell to the police station and soon suspect that they have far more on their hands than a speeding, evasive driver. Detectives notice him wearing a long trench coat with one-inch nails protruding out from both the shoulder and wrist areas of the coat. He also wore old pants tucked into his socks and he also wore gloves. They assist Pennell in emptying his coat pockets in a Jokinda my, my, my moment. Found a torch, a sash cord, a wool cap, empty cigarette packs, tape, a wig, and that horrific face mask. Pennell also had a smell to him. A musty smell. 46 years old in 1971, Edward Pennell's only known crime up to now had been stealing food and giving it to starving people in World War II when Nazi Germany controlled the island. Born in 1925 to an affluent family, he grew up to be a good guy, kind and considerate, good with kids, and he was known to be a night owl who liked to roam the island and go for a midnight fish. I'm a night owl too, so I understand, but I either go to IHOP or go for a walk. I don't bring people out to fields and rape them, but I digress. <laughs> In 1959, well after the first attack, Pennell marries Joan, a lady who he meets while repairing the foster home in which she operates. The children refer to him as Uncle Ted and know him to be kind-hearted and during Christmas time, he gives the foster children presents and even dresses up as Santa Claus. But the couple did not have a conventional marriage by any means, though they did have a daughter and he did help raise Joan's two daughters from a previous relationship. Pinnell ends up building himself an annex at the back of the house to live in. The space has an office, living room, and bedroom, and Joan and her husband keep up appearances, but essentially they have like completely separate lives. Joan considers him to have a low sex drive and speculation exists that he had taken a mistress, which some reports say was a nurse named Florence. Known to have a very intense, like almost to the point of OCD, obsession about his personal hygiene, Pennell takes several showers each day and has like special medical grade antiseptic soaps. When the police question Edward, they ask him about his choice in clothing, and he claims that he was on his way to an orgy and that he wore this outfit in order to protect him, and his martial arts skills would protect him as well. He claimed to have borrowed a car so that no one would recognize him. He did not comment about the mask and the wig, but please notice like tape marks on his face matched the tape marks in the mask. So like clearly he had worn the mask at some point during the evening and fear emerged that he could have even like victimized someone that very night. The police lock him up and strongly suspect that they had finally cut the beast of Jersey. The next day, the police search his house and find a secret room. The room is said to have had a certain smell to it. Yes, you were right. It was a musty smell. 
More important investigators find clothing, including a tracksuit, a raincoat, wigs, hats, and even uh, false eyebrows. They find a camera and develop the film and discover photos of different houses on the island on the film. Most freaky, they notice an altar with like black magic rituals as well as a wooden sword hanging above it on the wall. Like, this is straight up satanic, bleh, creepy stuff. Penel admits to having a fascination with the dark arts and even admits to desire to be like who he says is his ancestor, Gilles de Rey. And now I may cover him on another episode, but Gilles de Rey was a French soldier who kidnapped and tortured over 200 children in the 15th century. Like, not a good guy, not someone who you should inspire to be. Authorities charge Edward Pinnell with 13 counts, including rape, indecent assault, and sodomy against six victims. His trial begins in November 1971, which they only arrested him in July. Like, this was a very quick and speedy trial. They must have had so much evidence over him that they were like, let us just put this together and put this guy in jail. The Beast never explains his motivation and his evasive and babbling answers include curses and black magic. He also calls upon the police and prosecutors, and I quote, to prove it. Like, the prosecutor would say something and he would just be like, prove it, prove it. The only defense that his team could actually use was insanity. By now overwhelming evidence on how cunning and how well he planned his attacks had emerged. Remember, the Beast evades justice for 14 years, but now investigators are able to prove that he would scout out and take photos of the houses knowing how to get into the home without detection. The Irish accent, it was fate. He was a native of Jersey. Another misdirection? Leaving cigarettes at the scene, he didn't smoke. He wore masks to hide his identity and to further terrify his victims. Proud of his crimes, the letter to the police read earlier as such. Remembering the gathering of fingerprints that the police of Jersey did on all males? Well, all of them except 13 gave their fingerprints, and guess who was one of the 13? Edward Pinnell. The jury finds Edward John Louis Pinnell guilty on all charges in just 38 minutes of deliberation on November 29, 1971. His sentence, 30 years. Serving his time in Winchester Prison in England, he tries to appeal his conviction in 1972 without success. Thank God. In 1989, he marries his alleged mistress, the nurse named Florence. And a little sidebar here, like, how can people marry people who, like, commit murders and these heinous, awful sexual crimes while they're serving their sentence in prison? Like, this guy is not a changed man. I don't understand that at all. In 1991, just 20 years of prison... 
I know in like England and other countries, a life sentence is normally like 20 to 25 years. But anyway, Edward Pennell was just in prison for 20 years. And in 1991, they released him. He attempts to return to Jersey, but the citizens made life difficult for him. Good. And so he moves to the Isle of Wight, where he dies in 1994 of a heart attack. Some speculate that additional victims exist, especially at the foster home that his ex-wife Joan operated. Did he sold some of the children there? Allegations suggest that he would crawl into the children's beds and their rooms at night in a mask and like watch them sleep. Or in 1972, Joan releases a book titled The Beast of Jersey. And another book was written about him, which has the title The Beauty and the Beast. Jersey, a small, somewhat isolated island with few people, provided the beast with a perfect place to commit crime and to not get caught for a long time. He left little evidence and used misdirection tactics in order to invade detection. In the end, the guilty was someone known and someone who did live in the community. If he had just pulled over and taken that ticket, he likely would have evaded detection and continued with his wrath. Prior to DNA and prior to modern police techniques allowed Edward Pinnell to reign tear on the small island. The case provides a particularly interesting study as to many have never heard of the Beast of Jersey, but many items within his MO are cliches one thinks of when thinking about serialist rapists. This completes the seventh episode of a crime story podcast, and I know this was a heavy one. And if you or yourself are experiencing sexual violence or have in the past, you can go to victimconnect.org to be able to find resources. I would love to hear your thoughts on this case. Why do you think Edward was able to go undetected for 13, nearly 14 years? How do you feel about the falsely accused fishermen? Do you think the island of Jersey was forever changed? You can comment on a crime story Instagram at a crime story pod where I will also be posting images of today's case. Y'all, you need to see this mask. Go to Instagram and look at it right now. You can also comment on a crime story podcast on Facebook or even on Twitter at a crime story pod. Um, I will also be posting a YouTube video uh, on the channel, a crime story podcast, where you can even see additional photos from today's case. I've also started a website, acrimestorypodcast.com, where you can listen to the podcast as well as read a transcript of today's story. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please leave a review of the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, it helps others find the show. Also, if you could tell a friend about a crime story, I would greatly appreciate it. I hope you tune in next week where I will be covering a case from Germany, which I'm pretty excited about because it's my first German case and it is a doozy. 
A Crime Story is written, hosted, and created by me, Kaylin Lois. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show's notes. Theme music is by Ross Butchen. Additional voices for this episode is brought to you by my boyfriend, Francois. And additional story editing is brought to you by my awesome father, Mike. Thank you so much for listening and remember to stay safe and be kind. Bye.